Well, this is Memorial Day weekend, for those of you who are unaware. And um, this, this weekend, we'd like to just pause briefly uh, for a time just to remember those who have fallen um, in service to our country. Uh, the very first funeral that I ever had the opportunity to do uh, was for a fallen, a fallen individual who, who was uh, killed in the line of service. And I can remember, I'll never forget, that image is for, would forever be seared in my mind. Um, as I stood before the family and tried to deliver words of comfort and to see a 22-year-old widow along with her two-year-old son who is sitting there in the front pew and the generals who are sitting across from her uh, giving her awards and at the end of the, of, the, of the funeral service walking them out to the hearse and seeing the casket loaded and seeing the general come over with the folded flag and hand it to her and as soon as he put that flag in her hands she just began to weep uncontrollably and that image will forever be seared in my mind. And it's this weekend that we remember men and women like them who have fallen, serving our country, protecting our freedoms. And so what I'd like to do here before we open God's word together is just take a moment and pray uh, for those families who this weekend is a time of remembrance for them, a memorialization of the sacrifice that their husbands and fathers and wives and mothers have made on the battlefield serving our country. So what I'd like you to do is just I'll take a few moments. We'll have some time of silence. I'll ask you to pray. Maybe you have a, a brother or a sister or a mother or a father or an uncle or aunt or someone in your family, husband or wife, who may have served or may have given all they had in the line of duty. I'd ask you to pray for those that you know personally um, who have, are, are experiencing that this weekend and remembering their loved one. And then just generally for all who are part of um, our nation and her, her history and their service to our country. And so just take a moment and pray for those families this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we read stories online and in the newspaper and see television reports about what's taking place in other parts of the world and where American troops have been deployed. And we see um, the, the, the faces and the images that flash across our screens. But Father, it's those images and faces that are forever seared in our hearts and minds that we most remember on days like today and weekends like this one. And Father, we do pray this morning for all those families uh, who um, have grieved and mourned the loss of one that they cared for deeply, who is serving and protecting the freedoms that we enjoy, our ability to assemble in this place and worship together freely this morning. Father, we pray for those families. We pray that, that the sacrifice of their loved one would not be in vain. And we pray that you would give comfort and grace to them even as they continue to remember the birthdays missed out on, the parties left unattended, the graduations that they would not be present for. Father, I pray that you give great grace and great comfort to those who are still hurting, whether it be the wounds have opened years ago or perhaps they've opened just recently. Father, I pray they would find you to be sufficient 
And they would know that there's been a sacrifice that's been made for them. That's beyond any sacrifice that any troop has ever made on any battlefield. But there was a great battle that was waged. And there is one who gave himself and his all for the sake of all who would trust in him. And I pray that in hours in which they find their hearts to be hurting, they would look to him. They would look to Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him took upon the cross. And I pray that that would bring comfort to their hearts and that your spirit would indeed bring healing. Father, as we open your word together this morning, I pray that you would speak to us. Father, I pray that you would give clarity in our minds and conviction in our hearts that there might be change in our lives as we go forth from this place. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've got a Bible, open up to James chapter 5. We've been working our way through the book of James over the course of the last several months together, and we're nearing its conclusion. Uh, next weekend, we'll wrap that up. But we're in James chapter 5 this weekend in verses 1 to 6. Um, it's a very comforting text, if you haven't read it yet. Um, it's a very challenging text, actually, in James 5, 1 to 6. We'll read that together, and then we'll jump, we're going to just jump headlong into it. But in James 5, beginning in verse 1, James writes these words. He says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you, and will eat your flesh like fire." You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned. You have murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Uh, in the Great Commission in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 28, Jesus issues a commission to his followers and he says, Go and make disciples. And he sends them out on the very mission that he had come to inaugurate and institute. And so Jesus says, What I have been doing now, I want you to go out and do. I want you to go and make disciples. But whenever he gives them instruction, he talks about baptizing them and then he talks about teaching them. Now, most of us, when we think of that text in Matthew chapter 28, those of us who know the Great Commission, we think we've got to go and reach people and teach people everything that Jesus taught us. And that would be true, but it would also be incomplete. Because in the Great Commission, Jesus doesn't just say, I want you to relay information that you've received from me. He doesn't just say, I want you to teach content to these people. So in Bible study classrooms or in services as you preach sermons or in conversations and discussions or as you read books, I don't want just there to be the relay of content and information and knowledge because Jesus says in the Great Commission, he says, go and teach them to observe everything that I've commanded you. Not just relay information, but teach them how it should shape and direct and rearrange their lives. So when Jesus sends out his church on their mission, he's not just saying go and lay out principles and, and, and information, but he's saying go and have a presence in the lives of people that reorients and reshapes and redirects and rearranges the priorities of their heart and what then flows out of that in their actions and their daily living. So Jesus is concerned not just with what we know, but what we're doing. And James picks up on that all throughout his little book. 
right? James has been pushing us to make a distinction between a mere profession of faith and saying that we trust in Jesus and that we signed a card at some pledge card at some service or indicated that in a checkbox that we prayed a prayer with a pastor whenever we were seven. But James has been saying there's a distinction between those who just profess faith and those who actually possess faith in Jesus. He says those who possess faith, it begins to reshape and reorient and rearrange their lives in a way that they live and act differently. And so James has been pushing us throughout this entire book on that very issue of what does it look like? What does it look like to live as the people of God among the peoples of the world? To live lives that God's calling us to, not just to know what He commands, but actually observe what He commands. Actually live what He commands. Actually embody what He's commanded us to do. And if there's one area in which the 21st century Americanized church has almost completely jettisoned observing what Jesus has commanded, it's in the area of money and finance. And that's what James comes to touch on this morning in James chapter 5. Now listen, there's some texts in the Bible that are very comforting, right? You could drive up on the property, you see the cows roaming around out there in the fields, and they're eating grass, and they're giving birth to these little calves, right? These little calves come out, and they're so cute and cuddly, and they're walking around. And for, for a while there, you know, they're, they're, um, they're, they're feeding on mommy's milk, right? And there's some texts in the Bible that are very nourishing, like a mama cow, right, with her, with her baby calf. And that calf's there suckling on the milk that her mom provides. Texts like Psalm 23, whenever you think about those who are going through very difficult and challenging seasons. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Very comforting and nourishing for those who are walking through the valleys of darkness in their own lives. And there are some texts that are kind of like eagles and they're flying way above our heads and it's hard for us to wrap our mind around what it actually means and how to, how to live it. But then there are some texts that are kind of like a raging bull in the pen. Okay, and that thing stands about six and a half feet tall at its shoulders, and it's got these massive horns and a big stout ring in its nose, and it just kind of runs us through. And that's the kind of text that we're digging into this morning. It's one of those texts that just runs us through. Because if there's any area in which the 21st century Americanized Christian church has jettison Jesus' teaching. It's probably in this area of money and finance. And that's why James speaks the way that he does to the people that he's writing to. Now, we can, we've got one or two options, right, with this particular kind of text. Either we can, like the big bull in the ring, right, in the, in the arena, everyone's kind of standing around and watching. We can either take the red cape and we can kind of dance around that thing for about 35 minutes. Oh, lay, right? We can dance around in the room for 35 minutes trying to kind of dismiss what James has to say to us or we can grab the bull by the horns and just kind of hang on for the ride and that's going to be my approach this morning we're going to grab the bull by the horns and I hope you'll hang on for the ride with me okay I'm going to try not to dance around what James says but we're going to try and go right at the heart of what he is saying so in order to do that let me go ahead and first say there's a couple of ways that we might try and dance around what this text has to say to us this morning and the first one is this is that we might assume that James could not be talking to Christians based on the way that he speaks to them right when you look at the language that James uses in the text it seems to be language that's very strict and very severe and very almost condemnatory So James must not be talking to Christians here, right? But James is absolutely talking to wealthy Christians who are a part of the church that he is writing to. 
Absolutely he's talking to them. Now what makes me think these individuals are Christians and not non-Christians that James was talking to? First, the whole book so far has been addressed to Christians who are in the church who are claiming to profess faith in Jesus. From the very beginning, in the outset in chapter 1, James has been talking to Christians about what it looks like to practice their faith and not just give intellectual assent to some body of doctrine. And so James is, I don't think he would just shift gears all of a sudden in James chapter 5 and then begin to write to an audience that's not even in the people that he's writing to. Right? So he's writing to Christians about people who are outside the church and then condemning the people who are outside the church to the people who are inside the church. Doesn't make a whole lot of sense why James would automatically shift gears there. He wouldn't be talking to people who aren't there. In addition, whenever he says, come you... Come now you, in verse, in verse 1 of chapter 5, he doesn't have to be talking to a different audience who's outside the church, but rather people who are a particular group of people who are inside the church. In the same way, in the previous context, in chapter 4, at the end, he says, Come now you who say, we're going to go to this city, and we're going to do this business, and we're going to make this profit, and we're going to stay this long. We're basically going to operate in a way that we've forgotten about God. And James, I think, is continuing to push that line of thinking into this particular text in chapter 5. He says, listen, not only will you make plans with your life and have kind of forgotten about God and living as if He doesn't exist, but you can also use your money that way as well. And so I think he's talking to Christians who are part of the church. And the severity of the language, even though it sounds much like the prophetic language of the Old Testament, God speaks pretty severely to Israel in the Old Testament as well. And he does so in order to call her to repentance. And I think that's what James is doing here. He's speaking very severely to these wealthy Christians who are part of the church to wake them up. And here's why. Because for James and for the rest of the authors of Scripture, fruitlessness is a pretty severe condition. It's a pretty severe condition. That's why you have the warnings in the book of Hebrews. That's why you have a warning like this in James. Because fruitlessness is a pretty severe and dire condition. James says, listen, if you, if you claim to have faith in Jesus and yet it's been two years, three years, four years, five years, and there's really been no marked change in your life, and in particular the way that you handle the resources that God has provided for you, then you have no reason to comfort yourself with any kind of assurance that you actually are a Christian, James says. Because fruitlessness is a severe in dire state. And so what James says to us and what I hope that we see in this text is not something to come and lash you, but rather to hopefully to wake you up because I love you. Because I love you as a pastor loves his flock, as a shepherd loves his sheep. And I want you I want your heart to be fully engaged in where God is and who God is and what he's doing. And so James speaks pretty severely to call us to repentance. But there's a second way that we can kind of wave the cape and try and dodge what James has to say here. And it's this, is that we might live with the false assumption that he's not talking to me because I'm not rich. By Western American standards. I'm not rich, man. Come on, dude. I, I, I take home like 50 grand a year. After I pay the government what I owe them, my household takes home 50 grand a year. Right? I'm not rich. 
But did you know, when you start comparing what you make with what the rest of the world has, if you make $50,000 as a family after taxes with two children in your home, you're in the top 8.5% of income in the entire world. If you make 70000 as a family after taxes with three children in your home, you're at the top 6.5% of income in the world. If you make 90000 as a family after taxes with four children in your home, you're at the top 5.5% of income in the world. Keith and Holly, I'm not sure what it takes for five kids, all right? Uh, but you see, the, you see the scale there, right? We don't think that we're rich when perhaps we are in the, in the upper echelon of Wealth well, across the globe. Across the globe. And so we can't look at this text and go, well, he's not talking to me. He doesn't have anything to say to me about where I am right now because I'm not rich. See, the problem is that our, our measure, our, 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 the, 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 the standard by which we're measuring wealth. We're looking around at everyone else around us who has, you know, half a million dollar homes or three quarter of a million dollar homes where we go, well, those are the rich people. It's not me. I, my house only costs 150000 That person's house costs 750000 You do the math. I'm not rich. We want to dismiss it and write it off. We don't have that luxury. See, here's a part of our problem is that underneath some of our, 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 our predispositions and our assumptions about what wealth looks like, is this, is the reality that North Texas Christianity, you've heard me say this before, some of you, North Texas Christianity is not New Testament Christianity. It's not. North Texas Christianity tends to be very comfortable, cultural, and complacent, while New Testament Christianity is sacrificial, it's happily generous, and never yielding. North Texas Christianity tends toward accumulation, while New Testament Christianity tends toward simplicity. North Texas Christianity tends toward building bigger and bigger barns on earth, while New Testament Christianity moves toward building bigger and bigger barns in heaven. They are not the same thing. There is a strain of North Texas Christianity that's been unleashed on the population, and it has essentially inoculated many to what authentic, true New Testament Christianity looks like. And so we can't say, well, I'm not rich. Or James isn't talking to Christians. He is absolutely talking to wealthy members of the church. Which, for most of us in this room this morning, is you and I. Based on global standards. And so what does he have to say to us? What is it that we should repent of? Because that's the language that he uses. When he says, weep and wail and howl. Right? That's the language of like tearing your clothes in the Old Testament, putting on sackcloth and ashes, getting on your face before God in repentance. He's calling us to repent, but what is he calling us to repent of? Listen to what he's calling us to repent of. First of all, he's calling us to repent of hoarding, of hoarding wealth. Look at what he says in verses 2 and 3. He says, Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and the corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. That's super encouraging. <laughs> right? He says your wealth is rotting and your gold and silver, they've been exposed to corrosion. Essentially what James is saying is that the things that God has determined should be used to be funneling through you to ministry and charity to the serving of God's pur redemptive purposes in the world and the needs of people who are around you have gotten bottlenecked and they've begun to back up. 
and they begin to back up so much that if you, you know, you, you realize if you store wood outside long enough and you don't use it, what happens to it eventually? It rots and it decays and it's no good any longer. And James says it's exactly what's happening with your wealth it's because of the hoarding that's taking place. He says in verse 3 that you've laid up treasure for yourself. Other translations actually interpret that or translate that. You've hoarded wealth. You've hoarded it. Now James isn't talking about saving here because you can go elsewhere in the Bible. You can see in Proverbs chapter 6 where the author of the Proverbs says, Listen, consider the ant, right? You sluggard. Another encouraging text. He calls us sluggards. Consider the ant. What does he do? He stores up for himself. So he goes out in the, in the seasons in which he can find food. And he goes out and he brings it back in. And he stores up so he, for the long winter that's ahead of him. Right? So it's not wrong to save. But James says it's absolutely wrong to hoard. To hoard. And James says, essentially, this is what the church that he's writing to, and I believe if he were standing before us today, he'd say to the North Texas Christians, he would say, you've got to repent of hoarding. Of hoarding wealth that God has designed to be a blessing to others. To use you as a conduit, as a channel, to funnel that towards the needs of others and toward the ministry that needs to take place. James says when you hoard, it ends up rotting and corroding and wasting away. But the second thing that he says that we should repent of is, is this, is having no gap between your actual lifestyle and your possible lifestyle. Now listen, this is where it begins to press on us, okay, in very practical ways. James says in verse 5, listen to what he says to the folks who were rich in his day. He says that they have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. They have lived on earth in, earth in luxury and self-indulgence. So they've hoarded wealth. It's gotten bottlenecked with them and they've hoarded it for themselves as opposed to channeling it out toward ministry and charity and helping to take care of the needs of others and advancing God's mission in the world. So they've hoarded it in order that they might have a luxurious and indulgent and comfortable lifestyle. James says there should be a gap between our actual lifestyle and our possible lifestyle as Christians. As opposed to leveraging every cent that we have toward luxury and self-indulgence. Rather, James says, listen, you've, you've hoarded so much in, insofar as he's probably talking to wealthy landowners who have servants that work for him, cutting the grass and working the grounds. And so he says, you've hoarded to the degree where you've held back wages that are due to your laborers so that you can fund your lifestyle of luxury, self-indulgence, and over-the-top comfort. And so James says, as opposed to leveraging every cent that we have for the sake of our comfort and our luxury and indulgence, he says you should leverage the money that you have, not just for luxury, but you should function with integrity. He says, pay your way, your, your, the people who work for you. Don't defraud them. And then he goes on to say, and I think he would say as well if he were standing here before us, it's not that you leverage every cent that you have for luxury and comfort, but for integrity and compassion. For compassion that's channeled out toward those who are in need. And as opposed to living in luxury and self-indulgence, I think what we have to come to wrestle with for us who are living in this North Americanized, North Texas kind of Christianity, we have to come to wrestle with the fact that 
there are probably some changes that I need. And I'm not speaking to you right now. I'm talking to me. When I look in this mirror, there are some changes that I need to make in my lifestyle in order that my possible lifestyle is, or my actual lifestyle is somewhere below my possible lifestyle. And as your income rises... Over the course of time, and so you get, you get out of school, right, right now, man, I'm making 500 bucks a month working some, you know, kind of retail job somewhere, and then you get out of school, and you get your first kind of job, and your income begins to spike, and now you're making like, you know, 40 grand a year, and you're like living the high life at 40 grand a year, and then, you know, you get raises over the course of time, and new jobs, and promotions, and, and, and advancement, and so you're making 50, 60, 70 grand a year. Listen, as you, your income increases, there should be an ever-widening gap between what you can live, the lifestyle you can live, and the lifestyle that you are living. Listen, Tim Keller is a pastor in New York City. He tells the story of John Wesley. John Wesley is a famous Methodist preacher, kind of started Methodism, okay, in that movement in church history. But the story is told, and it's a pretty, pretty well-known story of John Wesley. In his early years in ministry, he made 30 pounds a year. Okay? Now, he became very wide known and from his publications and as an author and preacher. And so his income began to rose, rise sharply. So his first year, he made 30 pounds a year and he gave away three. Second year, he made 40 pounds and he gave away 10 and he continued to live on 30. The next year, he made 70 pounds and he gave away 40 and he kept living on 30. And by the end of his career, he, he made 1,400 pounds one year. And he gave away 1,370 of it. And he continued to live on 30. Now some of you right now, you're like doing all the math in your head. You're like, well, you don't don't have inflation and cost of living increase and all this stuff, right? That's not the point. The point is, is that as your income rises, there should be a widening gap between the life you could live and the life you are living. Now you go, well, where's that line? I don't know. I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. There's no appendix in the back that says, well, here's the table, and if you make this much, this is what you should be doing. If you make this much, this is what you should be doing. If you make this much, this is what you should be doing. There's no table like that in the appendix. And I think that's for a purpose. It's because the Bible's written for all peoples, in all places, at all times, in every culture. And so it looks different. It looks different. But just because there's no appendix in the back, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't make an effort to try and determine what are you going to live on and what's going to be channeled through you to others. Because I have a feeling that if James were here in my own life and he was standing in front of me, he would say, brother, you are very, you're, you're, like, you're right there with verse 5. I have a feeling he'd say the same thing to the rest of us in the room. That we're leveraging every cent toward comfort and convenience as opposed toward compassion and ministry. Now there's a difference, right? There's a difference between a life of basic necessities and conveniences and a life of luxury, indulgence, and absolute pursuit of comfort. There's a difference between those things. Now, where that line is for you, that's something between you and God that you have to wrestle with. The problem is, is we don't like wrestling with it. That's not a fun match in the ring. 
because there are probably areas that God will begin to press on in your heart and you go, I can't, what? My clothing budget needs to be cut? Trimmed? My housing budget needs to be trimmed? What kind of car I'm driving? What kind of house I live? What kind of clothes that I wear? The kind of restaurants that I go to eat at? On a regular basis? Are you leveraging every cent toward comfort and indulgence and luxury? Or is there a widening gap between where you are living and where you could be living? James says you've got to repent of hoarding. You've got to repent. You've got to repent of luxury and self-indulgence. That's what he says. So how do we do that? How is it that we move in the other direction? How is it that we ensure that our lifestyle begins to move in the opposite direction. Well, there's two things I think James says you've got to see. Two things you've got to see. And the first one is this. You've got to see that Jesus is coming back. You have to see that he's coming back. If you look in verse 3, at the end of verse 3, James says to those who are rich in his audience, you have laid up treasure for yourself when? You've hoarded treasure for yourself in the last days. Now, the last days in the Bible are the time between Jesus' uh, resurrection and his return, or his ascension and his return. We're living in the last days. James' audience, we're living in the last days. We are living in the last days. James is saying Jesus could come back at any time. It could be a thousand seconds from now. It could be a thousand years from now. It could be three years from now. It could be three months from now. It could be 3,000 years from now, but he's coming back. James is operating with this fixed principle in his mind that we're living in the last days. And James says you should be leveraging wealth towards storing up treasure in heaven. In heaven, not on earth. Because he is returning, James says. So instead of pursuing luxury and comfort, we're called to chase after integrity and compassion in the last days. Because we recognize that this window of time that we have is not guaranteed to us. And it could be a very short window that we possess. We don't know if Jesus is going to show up before the end of this service. Some of you are like, man, I hope he will, right? But we don't know if he will show up before the end of this service. And so James says, in the last days, how are you leveraging the resources that God has given you? Are you hoarding treasure for yourself so that it's rotting and being wasted? Or are you leveraging it toward what God is doing and his purposes and his mission in ministry and charity? caring for the very practical and tangible needs of people and contributing to kingdom work. James says you've got to understand, it's got to be fixed in your mind that Jesus is coming back. He's coming back. And if you really believe that Jesus is coming back, then there should be a riskiness about what you do with your money. I'm willing to make that investment because I know I know he's coming back to set everything right, and I don't know when that's going to happen. I'll write that check. I'll contribute to that ministry. I'll help fund the needs for that charity that's caring for the practical needs of people. I'll help make sure that church or that missionary is, be, is being able to be sent to where God is sending them and do the ministry that God's calling them to do to advance the kingdom. Why? Because my king's coming. He's coming. James says it's, you're living in the last days and how are you leveraging what God has provided 
before you. See, he's not just talking about, do you know that Jesus is coming back, right? He's not just talking about information, right? But observing, orienting your life around that very truth. And James says, if you will, you wouldn't hoard treasure in the last days, but you would leverage it in the last days. There's a second thing that James says you got to see. He says you got to see not only that he's coming back, but that he has come once already and that he was betrayed for you. If you look in verse 6, James tells his audience that there is literally a, a righteous one who was condemned and murdered. And he says this righteous one that he's talking about in verse 6 or this righteous person. Some of your translations might even try and translate it the righteous poor in verse 6. But in verse 6 he says, You have condemned and you have murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Now some, some authors and some commentators tra- want to translate that as the righteous poor. And so that there are people who are righteous, who are God's people, who have no wealth and they have no riches and they have no influence and they have no leverage in society. And that the rich in James's community are oppressing them, even condemning them and murdering them. There's one, a couple of problems with that view. And here's the first one is that James doesn't use the plural when he talks about the righteous person. He uses a singular. He's not talking about multiple people. He's talking about one person. In addition, if he were going to talk about the righteous poor, he would say, they cannot resist you. They can't go hire lawyers. They can't fight this in the legal system. They have no influence or power or prestige in order to oppose you. But he doesn't say he cannot resist you. He says he does not. It's a word of voluntary relinquishment. Not that he can't oppose you, but he doesn't oppose you. So James is, I don't think he's talking about the righteous poor. I think he's talking about Jesus. He's saying Jesus was betrayed. He was condemned and murdered for you. And even though he could have called down the armies of heaven to oppose, he does not, but he voluntarily lays his life down. He voluntarily relinquishes, right? As Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, he voluntarily relinquishes his riches. He who was rich became poor so that in him and for his sake or for your sake you might become rich in him. He's not talking about money there. But Jesus laid his life down. And he was condemned and murdered and betrayed by someone for what? 30 pieces of silver. You got Judas there in the Gospels who betrays his, our Lord for money. But I find it very interesting because there's another story in the Gospel accounts. In Mark chapter 14, several other places we find this story of a woman who before Jesus' death, she comes to a dinner and she takes a very expensive vial, perhaps a family heirloom. The most valuable thing this family possessed was this vial of ointment or perfume. And she not only opens it, but she shatters it to anoint Jesus and pours it out over him. In other words, she says, here's everything that I've got and I'm leveraging it for you, Jesus. I see, I wonder... For myself, when I look in the mirror, 
today and tomorrow and next week and the week after. I'll be living a life more like Judas where I'm betraying Jesus for money, for comfort, for luxury, for self-indulgence. Or will I be more like this unnamed woman who takes the most valuable thing that she's got monetarily and shatters it to anoint Jesus, to show that he, he and he alone is my greatest treasure. Is your giving to ministry and charity cutting into your lifestyle? James says for every Christian, it should. And then you look back in the Old Testament, you see the tithe there, it's 10%. And listen, if most of us in this room gave 10% of our income, it would be enough to cut into our lifestyle and some of the choices that we're making. And my hope, my hope is that God would raise up a church here that is so zealous for Jesus' mission in this world be a part of kingdom purposes and caring for those who are in need, that we would take our treasure and we would pour it out. We would pour it out indiscriminately, sacrificially, so that we would not be those who merely profess Jesus with our lips, but we possess a faith that reorients our lives and our pocketbooks. Let's pray together. Father, we come today. We thank you for your grace and goodness. We thank you that you poured yourself out for us in the sending of your son, that he gave and he gave and he gave and he gave. Father, I pray that we would not in our own lives, dance around this text. But rather, that by your grace, as your spirit is at work in the hearts and lives of your people, that you would bring us to a place. You would bring us to a place, not out of law or a legalistic attitude toward our money and finances, but out of great love for you and great love for the world that you have created. That you would bring us to a place where our hearts are so consumed with the reality that you are coming back so we have nothing to lose. And that because you have come, we have everything to gain. And I pray that that would make us happily generous and sacrificial with our goods. Father, I pray that we would not, like Thomas Akempis said, that we would not focus on living a long and comfortable life that doesn't matter to anyone but that our lives will be leveraged for the sake of your glory and the good of those around us 
And in particular this morning, I pray that about our finances. Father, help us to move from a help us to move from an endless pursuit of comfort to an endless supply of of compassion. But Father, help us to see that to move there, we've got to move through contentment. To be content with who you are and what you've given. And that our hearts and lives would be so content that we would be free to be so compassionate. We pray this in Jesus' name.